Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. I am Jan Fran. Today is Monday, the 5th of June, and with me, the 5th of June, it's the 5th of July. God, I've been in lockdown for too long. I'm losing my mind slightly. <laughs> I'm joined by Annika Smethurst. How are you going, Annika? I'm not too bad, and that's completely excusable. As someone from Victoria, I feel I can comment on lockdowns. I know what it's like. <laughs> Feels weird not being in one right now, though. It does send you slightly bonkers. How are you? Yeah, I think I'm doing okay. I'm counting down a Friday to see what'll happen. But, you know, the weekend's hard in any lockdown. I'm not going to complain because I keep thinking about Victorians and the, you know, 100 days they spent in lockdown. So I'm doing okay day (laughs) eight, I reckon. Well, on today's show, as our forces and diplomats prepare to leave Afghanistan, we're going to take a look at what is going to happen to the Afghan translators that worked alongside our troops. I was wounded in 2008 in an IED, an improvised explosive device ambush, and our interpreter was in the car that I was driving. He lost both of his legs in that. Other interpreters have been killed in combat. So they really do fight literally alongside us. Yeah, you're going to hear from an Australian soldier who worked side by side with these local interpreters, and you'll hear how invaluable they were to our troops in Afghanistan. You'll also hear from those working to get them out of the country ASAP. That's coming up in just a sec. But first, the big stories of the day. Relatives of aged care residents who have tested positive for COVID after another outbreak in Sydney have called on care providers to do more to ensure staff are vaccinated. Every family in this state should be asking if they've got somebody in aged care are staff vaccinated because they have the right to know and they have the right to choose what they can do about their loved ones. Kathy Maloko speaking there, her 88-year-old father was one of the three residents of the Summit Care Borkham Hills facility who was announced among positive cases yesterday. Two members of staff at the site in Sydney's northwest tested positive for the virus earlier in the week and the complex has been put under strict lockdown restrictions. But the CEO, Michelle Sloan, admitted yesterday, while nearly all residents are fully vaccinated, the same can't be said for the facility's staff. It's my understanding um, that about a third of our staff are vaccinated. Yeah, that's not a great figure there. One third of the staff being vaccinated, particularly given that aged care workers and aged care residents should have been among the first group to get vaccinated when we started our rollout back in February The three elderly residents who were all fully vaccinated were among 16 new cases that were announced in New South Wales yesterday. It's incredible we're still having this conversation about getting staff vaccinated. I know there are some issues around making it compulsory. I can't understand if you work in one of these facilities why you wouldn't want to not just protect yourself but protect the people you're caring for. It's just such a tragedy once it gets inside these aged care facilities and They're not the only people that aren't going by the rules. We've seen 12 NRL Dragons players and one of their wives fined after they had a house party against lockdown restrictions. Yeah, they had a house party at a player's home that was um, held in South Wollongong, which is um, just south of Sydney there. They are still under lockdown restrictions, so it doesn't matter who you are, you can't be mingling during this time. Also, WA and Queensland have recorded one new local COVID case, And in some good news, the trans-Tasman bubble has reopened, but only between Tasmania, the ACT, South Australia and Victoria. 
The federal government is refusing to set a date for when Australians under 40 will get access to the Pfizer vaccine, but says it could be within months. Young Australians should have confidence that they will see a full opening up uh, in the months to come, uh, and that may even be sooner than months. Yeah, Finance Minister Simon Birmingham speaking on the ABC there yesterday. Now, he did not give a date for when the vaccine would become available to young people, but he did say that the Commonwealth was expecting shipments of the drug to double to 600,000 a week sometime this month. Meanwhile, Commonwealth health experts say they still don't know what level of vaccination across the population would be needed for us to do away with lockdowns altogether. There is no magic figure uh, available. Yeah, that's Deputy Chief Medical Officer Dr Michael Kidd there. Um, It's interesting that he's saying that because I've heard some epidemiologists say that there is a figure, it should probably be around 80%. So there's a little bit of hesitancy there from the government to really commit to a figure. I wonder why, Annika. I have asked ministers and premiers this question whenever I've managed to get in front of them for a while now. And look, they do tell me that scientists are working on this and the Delta variant seems to have maybe thrown out some of their modelling. They're working on new models now just to see what level of safety. But there are some reasons why the government isn't keen to give us that figure, which Mm. we are told could be between 70 and 80%. And that's because they genuinely are worried they wouldn't have the vaccine numbers and it would be almost a gauge against how well they've done. They've got to be able to at least provide it to everybody. Gladys Berejiklian is the one that's come the closest. She said that she's said in the past around 80% would Mm. be something she'd be happy with, but it will take National Cabinet to agree. So we'll have to get all the premiers and the chief health officers and the federal government on board with a number on that one. And bad weather is continuing to hamper efforts to find survivors of a large mudslide which tore through a Japanese city on the weekend. 20 people are still missing after the torrent of mud swept through the city of Atami, southwest of Tokyo, on Saturday morning. Yeah, two people have been confirmed dead uh, following the disaster and 23 have been rescued, but crews from emergency services and the Japanese military, um, they've been forced to stop work several times due to heavy rain. The area where the mudslide struck had received more than 300 mils of rain in the 48 hours before the landslide, more than its monthly average. Yeah, because Japan is um, currently, well, right now in the middle of its rainy season and this is a time of the year when floods and natural disasters are unfortunately quite common all over the country. And authorities in Miami are preparing to demolish the remains of that collapsed apartment building amid fears an approaching tropical storm would wreak havoc on the site. This will protect our search and rescue teams uh, because we don't know when it could fall over. And of course, with these gusts potentially, you know, that would create a a really severe hazard. That was Florida State Governor there, Ron DeSantis, um, speaking. Now, rescuers have Pause the search. Um, there's about 121 people that are still missing, and this was, of course, after the apartment building collapsed more than a week ago. Now, Tropical Storm Elsa is expected to start impacting that southern Florida region within the next two days. So that's um, going to further hamper efforts, no doubt. Local leaders say the demolition would be organised so the remains of the building still standing would fall away from the rubble where rescuers have been searching. Authorities say rescue efforts will resume as soon as it's safe, with the current death toll from the collapse standing at 24. 
And to the Philippines, where at least 45 people have been killed after a Philippines Air Force plane crashed into a village in the south of the country. The C-130 Hercules was carrying 96 soldiers and crew when it crashed while landing yesterday. Yeah, three civilians on the ground were also among those killed and witnesses say that they saw people jumping out of the plane just moments before it crashed. All right, Annika, we're going to leave you here. Up next, Tom's jumping in. We're going to take a look at the push to bring Afghan translators to Australia. All right, now let's get into today's briefing on the race to save the Afghan interpreters who worked with the Aussie troops. They're at increasing risk from the Taliban who are taking more and more territory as the international troops leave. Here is one of the interpreters who just got to Australia. I was living in a place uh, where I was close to the work and I was also studying. Uh, there was a small shop uh, close to us and one, one day when I was returning from work, the shopkeeper told me, hey, there was a couple of guys that were asking about you. And I had this fear that they were uh, one of the uh, guys that who were behind me would want to, you know, target me. I just wind up my things and my stuff and got out of the place and shifted my room to another place immediately. So that was Nawidala Arman, a former interpreter for Australian forces in Afghanistan, speaking to the ABC there. He was granted an Australian visa last month and now lives in Brisbane, but he fears for others left behind in Afghanistan. It doesn't matter if you're a linguist, if you're a contractor, if you're doing anything, but if you're going to a base and helping the, uh, the coalition forces or native forces, you 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 would be a target for the Taliban and, you know, all those uh, extremist groups and anti-government groups. It doesn't matter. I'm, I'm very concerned about the lives of the people who has been helping Australians and other native forces. It sounds like an incredibly grim situation for the locals who worked with Australian troops in Afghanistan. According to our Immigration Minister, Alex Hawke, 1,400 visa applications have been granted to Afghan ADF employees since 2012. But according to at least one soldier who's worked with the interpreters, there are still hundreds, possibly thousands if you include their families, living under this increasing threat of attacks by the Taliban. Absolutely shameful that your old coalition has had seven years to get this job done. The world is watching how we treat our mates here. What kind of message does it send to the rest of the world that when you work with the Australian government, you're taking your life into your own hands? So that's Senator Jackie Lambie. She's a vet herself, clearly fired up about this. Lots of people saying we're not doing enough here to protect these people that were so important to our work there. Let's find out more about that work and how much danger we put these Afghan interpreters in. Yeah, Harry Moffat is a former SAS team commander who worked alongside interpreters in Afghanistan for years. He did seven tours to Afghanistan. Harry, what was it like to be a soldier working with these interpreters in the field? It was great. Uh, You know, they're very professional. Many of them have been there for um, rotations before we arrived, so they'd work with the US or other coalition partners. And uh, they were great to assist us to orientate on the ground, Know, the usual or what you would expect their role to be in terms of translation and interpreting with local villages and, and other forces that we worked with, Indigenous forces. Um, but also they would become our friends. So they built these friendships that also act as a place of 
the respite. So can you tell us what it was like, you know, out in the field in a dangerous situation? How, how closely were these guys working with you? Very. Uh, I was fortunate enough to work across a full spectrum of environments from headquarters to the battlefield, so to speak, and they were scattered throughout all of those environments. And working on the front lines, they were right beside us, uh, often only armed with a smile and a water bottle and some body armour, and uh, you know were often in amongst the fighting uh, and uh, were pretty adept at uh, finding you know, safety in those moments too uh, due to the experiences that they'd had over a long period of time. So uh, they were with us always, uh, everywhere. What were some of the most dangerous situations that they were put in when you were working with them in the field? Uh, Well, notwithstanding being caught in the middle of a gunfight without a weapon, Mm. I think, which is pretty dangerous, all of the situations we found ourselves in, there would invariably be an interpreter there. Uh, I was wounded in 2008 in an IED, an improvised explosive device ambush, and our interpreter was in the car that I was driving when we we, uh, hit that IED, and he lost both of his legs in that. Other interpreters have been killed in combat, so they really do uh, fight literally alongside us or serve alongside us, it should be said. Are they somewhat doomed the moment they start working with you guys? And do you think almost from that moment we have an obligation to look after them and even resettle them outside of Afghanistan one day? Yeah, definitely. I think you would think that we'd learned our lessons from past conflicts such as Vietnam, uh, where a similar thing took place at the end of that conflict. So, look, they're in, they're in grave danger now, families and and the associates. To go back to your question, I guess, you know, there is a bit of a, you know, from the moment they work with us, it's problematic for them. Given that we've lost the war, let's, let's call a spade a spade, mm. um, those people and individuals, and it's not just interpreters, I imagine it's anyone who's worked with or for the coalition. They're often, whilst we're in country during the Afghan campaign, A lot of locals who worked for us as well on a regular basis were uh, harassed or even killed for having worked with or for or around or even just the perception of working and supporting the coalition forces. And were interpreters the biggest category of locals that assisted international forces in Afghanistan? Because you mentioned that there were um, quite a few locals that played a role. What were those roles? Yeah, definitely. Uh, So from the headquarters in Kabul, they were provided house staffing, um, administrative roles, uh, security roles. So they were numerous. Uh, And that extended out into the forward operating bases where, you know, such as Tarankout and beyond, where they either played a role in the Afghan National Army or as partner forces, we called them the special forces. And also they played administrative and logistics and support roles in those forward operating bases, which are probably the most dangerous because in some cases those individuals would go home after having supported or worked for the coalition. The immigration minister said that since 2012, we've granted 1,400 applications for visas for these people that work for us in Afghanistan. Do you think that even touches the sides or are there going to be way more people that we need to be helping? Oh, it's complex. I would say it's a good start. Um, my understanding is that we've got potentially another thousand or thousands to consider and quickly, I would say, urgently. I don't think the Taliban and Al-Qaeda Accord is going to cut any slack to anyone 
I don't think there's any way of avoiding the impending tragedy in that sense. But, yeah, it's going to be difficult, I think, now that we've left the run so late. God, I mean, that's a pretty grim picture that you're painting there for the locals that helped us out in Afghanistan. Um, Coalition forces are set to withdraw by September. Um, It sounds, by what you're saying, that it's just going to get worse for them. So time is really of the essence. Absolutely. And the reprisals, I fear, we've seen it before historically, uh, you know, I fear that uh, anyone, even people who are caught up at the margins, friends and families who may even be perceived to have supported coalition forces would be in danger. It is a serious situation and I would ask government and diplomatic officials just to double their efforts. If there's one thing that we could possibly leave Afghanistan with, with a bit of dignity, uh, it would be to help those that helped us while we're there and and, and at least recognise the great danger they placed themselves in to assist coalition forces while, while we were there to do our work. That was Harry Moffat, former SAS team commander there. Glenn Kolomitz is another former officer. He's working directly with these interpreters, urgently trying to get them out of Afghanistan. Yeah, he's a former um, lieutenant colonel. He's also a lawyer and he's the director at GAP Veteran and Legal Services. Glenn, thanks for joining us. Are we getting these people out anywhere near fast enough? Look, I don't believe we are. Um, The government has announced they've uh, got a number of people out and we understand many of those people have been... uh, waiting for up to two years and we are aware of many many more who need to get out uh, and we don't believe their um, their processes have even been looked at yet yeah i read a story of a guy who applied five years ago there was another story of a guy who was rejected by peter dutton in 2013 and only last year got that overturned in the federal court i mean how is this process working or not working Look, I don't think, firstly, that they're giving adequate information to people who want to get out of Afghanistan and who need to get out of Afghanistan, and then they're not um, acting on that information quickly enough. It's a difficult situation, particularly now that there's no um, no access to embassy uh, services in, in Kabul. Well, that's right. Who's on the ground helping these people get the support they need to make these applications? As we understand, uh, very limited support on the ground there. Um, the Department of Defence is sending uh, PACs to people who apply to them, what they're calling Lee PACs, so locally engaged employee PACs, requiring a whole bunch of information, much of which is very difficult for them to obtain in Afghanistan for the applicants to obtain. So they're getting emailed assistance, often in very, very wow. vague terms, but inadequate support. Glenn, why do you think it has taken so long? I mean, we've been in Afghanistan for 20 years. Obviously, we're withdrawing in September. We know that we've had locals that have worked with us and have been invaluable to our defence forces there. Um, Why do you think it's come down to the wire? That's a really good question. This isn't new to us. We did it post-Vietnam. We did it post-Iraq. I don't know why they've left it so late when we've been putting pressure on for a number of years now. The government are saying that they've had the the wheels in motion, hence they've taken in 100 or so people to date. But that's as I say, those people have been waiting for years now. It's not as though they haven't had the support here in Australia. The government has had the support here in Australia to make this happen. Glenn, I wonder if one of the big challenges in helping these people settle is the the fears that they have for their family members back home. That's correct, and you know, often the extended families, quite large extended families, uh, there there are certainly concerns held there, and um, the regulations and indeed the legislation is fairly fairly clear about the family unit, which family unit members can come to Australia. Is it just immediate so, family? Um, it's it's quite immediate family. That's um, that's pretty clear. Um, it's, it's difficult to get some of the extended families out. But again, 
if we can work through those processes and help to prove risk arising mm. from the from the interpreters' um, work, then we can we can assist government get through that as well. It's uh, it's all part of the vetting process, and that needs to be happening right now. That was Glenn Collamitz, the former officer who's now the director at GAP Veteran and Legal Services, really pushing to get the remainder of Afghan interpreters out of Afghanistan, you know, before we're really out of there in September. Yeah, and I highlighted just how challenging this whole thing is mm. that with less um, international forces on the ground, it's even harder to make contact with the people that need the help to facilitate this process. Absolutely. And you think, you know, these processes often start with papers and forms being submitted to embassies and consulates. We don't even have an embassy or a consulate there anymore. Imagine filling out a form and you're like, oh, send this form off. Then you've got like the Taliban mm. advancing on your city. Yep. Hectic situation. All right, that's it for our show today. Tomorrow on The Briefing, we're going to take a look at a story that one of our listeners actually pitched to us. The discovery of hundreds of bodies of First Nations children in Canada. This is a huge story and it's one that we're going to take a look at tomorrow. So I hope you can join us. See you then. Listener.